Our scripture this morning will be, uh, or our message this morning will be from John chapter 12. As our custom, when we observe the Lord's table, uh, for many, many months now, some 70 months plus, uh, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. And... uh, my intent in doing this, particularly in connection with uh, ta- services that we observe the Lord's table, is that we would really uh, turn our hearts and our minds uh, to the Lord himself and what he has done for us, and that we would not just have the, the actual partaking of the bread and the juice uh, be the time that we remember And so um, John's Gospel, actually any of the Gospels, but we've been working through John's Gospel and it is a very uh, helpful tool to uh, turn our hearts and minds uh, toward the Lord. And uh, so we endeavor to do that again this morning. Uh, We are uh, only, I guess, about halfway through John's Gospel. But interestingly... Uh, chapter 13, which we're almost there, chapter 13 begins John's record of Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples. And so John gives us uh, several chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and then really 17, finishing off with uh, the prayer that the Lord makes uh, to the Lord. And then uh, chapter 18, he's arrested. All right. So, so John gives us a great deal of material uh, focused on that last time, really the last week, the last hours of the Lord's uh, ministry prior to his crucifixion. So in chapter 12, uh, we're right on the threshold of that. Um, the... Uh, the the verses that we studied last month, um, ending in verse 19, uh, speak of what we refer to as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which occurred uh, about a week before the Passover and uh, those things. And so we are right there on the threshold of those last hours of the Lord's ministry prior to his crucifixion. As we noted last, or I just mentioned last time, we dealt with the section that uh, presents the Lord entering Jerusalem. So let's begin our reading. I'm going to read starting at verse 12 and then uh, down through verse 26. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king comes sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that they had, sorry, that they, then they, then remembered they, sorry, getting my words mixed up. Then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast, The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip comes and tells Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, 
The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And then he carries on uh, from there. So we're stopping. There's obviously what follows is is connected as well, but uh, this gives us uh, a, a focus uh, on the passage that we will uh, be dealing with this morning. So as I mentioned uh, last week, having dealt with that uh, triumphal entry that has Jesus entering into uh, Jerusalem, uh, John's account of that concludes with an observation by the Pharisees. And of course, they were standing in opposition to the Lord Jesus. Uh, and they were feeling themselves very uh, fruitless in their own opposition. Uh, verse 19, perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. And then this comment, behold, the whole world is gone after him. Now, obviously, uh, that's an exaggeration because it was just the area there uh, where Jesus was ministering. Uh, but their point is well taken. And of course, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, the opening uh, line of verse 20 testifies to some of the whole world going after him. And so we're told that there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same, therefore, came unto Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And so my first point is this, connecting what I just read with uh, the triumphal entry. What we find here, first of all, is that Gentiles desire to see the king of Israel. Uh, they say to Philip, we would see Jesus. But of course, Jesus had just been proclaimed by the multitudes as the king of Israel. And so here we have these Gentiles. Uh, the term is Greeks, and uh, that would indicate that we're not talking Jewish people here. We're talking uh, Gentile people. Uh, they may or may not have been from Greece. Uh, the, the key point is uh, that they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And um, again, we cannot tell because the scripture does not tell us whether they were in fact uh, Gentiles who had proselytized uh, to uh, Judaism or whether they were, uh, there was a, a group of Gentiles who uh, writers refer to as God-fearing and uh, they would be those who, though they hadn't proselytized, uh, were uh, keenly interested in um, the Jewish scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament and uh, the Jewish worship, and so on. Uh, so regardless of whether they were actually technically proselytes or, or not, they were Gentiles. And their desire was that they would see Jesus. And of course, the indication would be that what they're really asking for is, we want to talk to him. Because they could see him. Right. I mean, he was there. He came into the city there. You know, the people are all around. He's ministering publicly. So they would be able with their physical eyes to see him. But when they come to his disciples and say, we would see Jesus, they're asking for an opportunity to speak with him and uh, to uh, uh, converse with him. Now, what is interesting is uh, we know nothing further about whether or not that meeting actually happened. Um, but the Lord uses their desire and Philip and Andrew communicating that desire to him. The Lord uses that as the basis for the words that he answers. 
Notice verse 22, Philip comes and tells Andrew. Again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying. Okay, so the words that Jesus speak are in answer to uh, Philip and Andrew coming to him and saying, here are these Gentiles, they want to talk to you. Right? And so in response to that uh, come Jesus' words. Right, So uh, what we would like to focus on initially is this desire of these Gentiles to see the king of Israel. As I pointed out in even reading the section that we read, the context of this is Jesus' triumphal entry. And as we noted in verse uh, 14 and 15, Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king comes, sitting on an ass's colt. Now, the last phrase of verse 14 says, as it is written. And then it proceeds to quote a passage of scripture. And the quotation is from the book of Zechariah. So let's turn to that. It's uh, one of the uh, last Old Testament prophets. uh, The second last book of the Old Testament. And we want uh, chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Okay, so so again, what I'm trying to, to do is to show us how the, the, the Lord orchestrates all of this to present a package to us, a package of information to us, right, that will be very, very helpful for us. We have the Lord Jesus proclaimed by the masses as the King of Israel. Uh, we find uh, his entry sitting on this uh, donkey's colt, Uh, in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, bringing forward that uh, Old Testament prophecy, placing it right here in this context. This is happening right now. And it's in that context that we have these Gentiles desiring to speak with him and to see him. All right. And so let us look here at Zechariah's prophecy, verse 9. So Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. All right. So that verse uh, is the verse that was quoted in John's Gospel, right? Uh, not quoted verbatim word for word, but uh, most of the verse uh, was quoted in John's Gospel. Now I want to note uh, just a couple of points here. Um, Thy king comes unto thee. Then John does not quote this, but it is so interesting, especially in light of what we just sang. Thy king comes unto thee, and then notice, he is just. He is righteous. Right. So this king is coming, and uh, the, the Old Testament prophet is pointing out, he is righteous in his coming. And then also, this phrase is not quoted by John. Next phrase, and having salvation. And what is so interesting, even as this Old Testament prophet, you know, uh, several centuries before the event takes place, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is seeing the Lord Jesus. And if you've been to, to Jerusalem, right, you, you, you stand on the Temple Mount or in front of the Temple on the east side of the Temple, and there are all these graves running down the valley into the Kidron Valley up the side of the Mount of Olives, but, but there's this, this rise of the Mount of Olives. And so it's as if the prophet Zechariah is seeing, you know, here's the, 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 the street, the road, the path, right, coming down the hillside of the Mount of Olives. And here's a donkey, 
and a person seated on the donkey. And here's uh, Israel, the daughter of Zion, shouting, right? Your king comes, and so on, right? So just an incredible picture. But what, what the Holy Spirit showed Zechariah is he is righteous and he has salvation. And of course, what he's anticipating is the event that will occur a week later, right? When that righteous one offers his life for our salvation, right? Uh, so again, the Old Testament prophet is speaking to that triumphal entry, but he is, he is directly connecting it with what is going to follow, right? Now, he also says some other things, right? So let's read verse 10 as well, Zechariah 9. <clears throat> and, so none of this is quoted by John in his gospel. And he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Chariot is an instrument of war. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. Right. So it's speaking of peace that he is going to provide. And he shall speak peace unto the heathen. That's the Gentiles. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth, right? And so here is this king, this king of Israel, and he's coming, and he is uh, coming just with salvation, and he is going to speak peace to the Gentiles, and his dominion is going to be the whole earth, right? Now, we know from the rest of scripture, that that part of the prophecy has not yet been fulfilled, right? So the king of Israel has to come again, right? And he will come again. And when he comes again, we'll have the peace of Jerusalem, right? And he'll speak peace to the Gentiles, and uh, he will bring peace in his reign, right? And his reign will be a worldwide reign, right? So, so there is that which is yet to be fulfilled. But what is so interesting to me is that Zacharias' prophecy, the very one that is quoted in reference to Jesus entering into the city as the king of Israel, Zacharias' prophecy also speaks of the Gentiles, and his relationship and ministry to the Gentiles. And so it is so interesting to me that John records back in John chapter 12, verse 20, that there were certain Greeks, certain Gentiles. They were there for the Passover. And they desire to see the king of Israel. The scripture tells us that these Greeks seek the help of Philip. Um, and the commentators will speculate as to why. Uh, why did they talk to Philip? And I guess why not, right? Obviously, he would have been one of the disciples. Uh, his name is actually a Greek name, right? So Philip is, is a Greek name. Uh, perhaps that was something that drew them. He obviously was from uh, Galilee, from Bethsaida, we're told in the next verse. Uh, verse 21, he was of Bethsaida of Galilee. And uh, so perhaps, um, you know, there were a number of Greeks, Gentiles that lived up in that area. The Decapolis is up in that area. And uh, so perhaps uh, he had some connection with some of them. We don't know for sure. Uh, but nonetheless, they come uh, to him and seek his help. Fair enough. He's one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, certainly a legitimate person to seek some help from. Uh, what is interesting is that we have this little fact that is pointed out to us that he was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Um, so again, aside from you know thinking of uh, a map of Israel and you've got uh, the Sea of Galilee and Bethsaida was a village on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was near there that Jesus fed the 5,000 and so on. So that kind of places him up there. 
but this isn't the first time that we were told that he was from Bethsaida. So keep your finger in chapter 12 and let's go back to John chapter 1. And there are a couple of verses that we want to look at here, but the first one is verse 44. Um, Well, let's read verse 43. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. So this is where John the Baptist announces him to the world. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And uh, he, John speaks to a couple of his disciples and says, and says that to them. And so these two disciples go and follow him. And then verse 43, the day after that, Jesus is going to head back up to Galilee and he finds Philip. And he says unto him, follow me. And then we're told, now Philip was of Bethsaida. But then we're also told this, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, Andrew was one of the two that were with John the Baptist when he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Andrew and the Apostle John was the other one. They go and follow Jesus, right? So the next day, uh, Jesus finds Philip. Philip obviously was also a disciple of John. He was down there with the others. And uh, Jesus uh, tells him to follow him. And here we're told then that Philip was of the same uh, town, as Andrew and and uh, Peter. So, uh, we won't turn back to chapter 12 quite yet, but as you think of chapter 12 saying, these Gentiles ask Philip, sir, we would see Jesus. Philip finds Andrew, right? So they're buddies, right? They're from the same town, went to high school together, right? And uh, knew each other. And, of course, for the last three years had been following the Lord Jesus. Uh, So it's interesting that Philip tells Andrew. Of course, uh, Andrew is no stranger to Philip. But what's also interesting is that here in chapter 1, we find that both Andrew and Philip are no strangers to introducing people to Jesus. Okay, so let's go back to chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two which heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So the verses before this have the two following Jesus. Jesus turns around and sees them. He says, what do you seek? And they say, well, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And so they spend the afternoon with him. Right, And then verse 40, uh, the one of the two was Andrew, we're given a name. Verse 41, he first finds his own brother Simon and says unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Right? So Messiah, the Hebrew uh, transliteration, Mashiach and Christ, Christos, the Greek, both of them mean anointed. And so Andrew says to his brother, we found the Messiah. Uh, And uh, uh, let's keep reading, verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus, right? That's my point. Okay, so Andrew is no stranger to introducing people to Jesus. The first one that he introduced to Jesus was his very own brother. We already noted that the next day, verse 43, Jesus calls Philip. Now notice verse 45. Philip finds Nathanael and says unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says to him, Come and see. And Nathanael comes, and it turns out that both Peter, whom Andrew brought, and Nathanael, whom Philip brought, also become one of the twelve, right? And so here are these two men, Andrew and Philip, and they have, from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, they have been involved in introducing people to Jesus, Now they have opportunity near the end of Jesus' public ministry 
to introduce some Gentiles to Jesus. And what is interesting is that 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 point, that they were Gentiles, may have been the very reason why Philip first goes and gets Andrew. Andrew, these Gentiles, they want to talk to Jesus, right? They're Gentiles. And Andrew, well, let's go ask Jesus. And so that's what they do. Chapter 12 again. If we go back to chapter 12, uh, verse 22. Philip comes and tells Andrew. Again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Right. So here we have these Greeks, these Gentiles that desire to see Jesus, the King of Israel. These two disciples who are no stranger to introducing people to Jesus, come and tell Jesus. And as I pointed out earlier, verse 23 tells us that Jesus' response is the answer that he gives to Philip and Andrew. His response is that the hour is now come that he should be glorified. You see that in verse 23? Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This is a very significant statement. We know chapter 13. We've read it. Andrew and Philip didn't know chapter 13. Right? So again, put yourself in their shoes. Right? Here is Jesus saying something that for the rest, the the entire previous ministry of his, the scripture, particularly in John's gospel notes, had not been the case. Jesus is saying, the hour is come. Let me just read for you a couple of references. You don't have to turn there. John chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus said unto his mother, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. That's chapter 2. That's just after they go back up to Galilee, the wedding at Cana of Galilee. Right? My hour is not come. Chapter 7, verse 6, he's speaking to his brothers, his physical stepbrothers. My time is not yet come. Verse 8, my time is not yet full come, he says to them again. Chapter 7, verse 30, testifies that they sought to take him, the Jews, but no man laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour was not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus is speaking again in the temple, in the treasury, as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him. Why? For his hour was not yet come. Right? And so John has made a point of making this point. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now, triumphal entry, fulfillment of Zechariah the prophet, Gentiles seeking him. Here's this one coming. He is just and has salvation. Okay, my hour has come. Remarkable. In the context of the triumphal entry, okay, notice again what Jesus is saying. The hour is come. We would say, what hour? Right? Well, it's the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified. That's what he says. The hour that the Son of Man should be glorified. Look ahead at verse 27. We hadn't read it. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the answer from heaven is, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And if you skip ahead just very briefly to chapter 17, verse 1. The end of Jesus' time in the upper room, uh, this high priestly prayer that he prays, uh, verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also 
may glorify thee. Right? So Jesus is saying, the hour is come. What hour? The hour that he should be glorified. Now, given the context of the triumphal entry, one might be excused for thinking that Jesus must be referring to the very thing that had happened. Um, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel! Blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna to the Son of David! Gentiles seeking Him! Well, He's being glorified. Right? I mean, here He is. They're acclaiming Him as King. And again, from the context, that's what you would expect. Put eyes on it in verse 12. Very much people coming to the feast, hearing that Jesus is coming. Take branches of palm trees, go forth to meet him. Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Again, verse 15, the quotation, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy King comes. And of course, the other Gospels speak similarly to what I've already alluded to. Matthew 21, verse 9, the multitude cries, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 15, Hosanna to the Son of David. Mark 11, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Luke's Gospel. Blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. But Jesus had something else in mind. The king's path to glory, this is my second point. So my first point, if you're taking notes, Gentiles desire to see the king of Israel. My second point, the king's path to glory leads through death. Jesus goes on to say, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. So he's giving here an illustration, and he's going to connect that illustration to himself in just a minute, which I will show you. But I would like to suggest that this which Jesus is saying, here are these Gentiles seeking the Lord, And he uses this to respond, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What follows then as he fleshes out this response is of great significance. It has significant ramifications to his followers. Notice verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Different word than glorify, similar idea. Jesus is saying it's the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified. If you would serve me, you're going to have to follow me. And if you follow me, the Father will honor you. So whatever it is that he's talking about, it has everything of significance for us if we will follow him, right? So let's explore then what he is talking about. Again, the king's path to glory leads through death. He speaks this illustration of a grain of wheat. A grain of wheat abides alone, alone and unproductive, bearing no fruit, Unless, as he says, it falls into the ground and dies. And if that grain of wheat, again, just think, single kernel. And I've spoken of this before. In the old days, 
my wife used to plant sunflowers, right? And uh, sunflowers are amazing things, right? You take this little teeny tiny seed, stick it in the ground. And from that seed comes this stalk, and depending on the variety of sunflowers, when we've had some that have a, a stalk, no kidding, you know, that high, that big around at the base, it rises up taller than the gutter of our house, right? The head is this big, and there are hundreds of seeds in there from one seed. But you know, if you had that seed sitting on your counter, what you would have is, a seed sitting on your counter. And that's all you would have. Right? It abides alone. If it goes into the ground and dies, it gives its life to all these other seeds. And of course, Jesus used an agricultural illustration earlier in his ministry in the parable of the sower, right? And the sower is sowing the seed and so on in the various kinds of soil. But, but even in the good soil, we were told, you know, that seed brings forth fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And what those numbers are meaning is from that one seed up grows this wheat and on the head of wheat, 30 seeds, 60 seeds, 100 seeds, right? The, the, the quantity is not the, the important point. At this point, the, the point is that seed died. Right? And so that's what Jesus is saying. Except a corn or a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And what I would say here very clearly, as I'll show you, Jesus here is anticipating his own death. Look again at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. See, he's talking about the same hour. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What should I say? My soul is troubled. Father, save me from this hour. What? The hour that you're glorified? What are you talking about? Well, to get to that glory is through death. Through death. And then he goes on and says, even down in verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This said he, signifying what death he should die. And of course, it's speaking of crucifixion. Lifted up from the earth, crucifixion. So the hour that Jesus has in mind, yes, it is an hour in which the Son of Man should be glorified, but it's an hour of his death. Right? That is what he's thinking about, his coming death. So he's anticipating his death, but even as uh, we've seen, he is also anticipating his own glorification. Verse 23, it is the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified. Again, verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. And voice from heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And even as you think of verse 32, talking about drawing all men unto him, that's glorifying his name. Uh, keep your finger here and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Again, this is the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified. And this has significance for all of his followers. This idea that the path to glory is through death. The king's path to glory led him through death. Right? And Philippians chapter 2, very familiar passage, uh, speaks of his taking the form of a human being. Verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, which was a shameful, not to mention painful death, hung, exposed to the world in public, right? Ebbing out your life in death. Excruciatingly painful, they say. But notice the next verse. Wherefore? 
God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Folks, that's his glorification. It's talking about his glorification. You went through that valley. You went through that valley of the shadow of death. You tasted death for every man. And now you are glorified. A name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. There you had voices. He comes down the mountain. Blessed is the King of Israel, he that comes in the name of the Lord. But you know, the Pharisees' mouths were shut. They would not glorify him. But one day, they will. They will. And so we are told, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right, And so the Godhead is glorified through the death of God the Son, the Son of Man, come to die for sinners. Isaiah 53, last verse, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I mean, what an incredible thing, right? The king comes, he's just, and he has salvation and it will be purchased at the cost of his own life. He pours out his soul unto death. But he's doing it for you He's doing it for me. He's doing it for us transgressors. right? That we might have our sins forgiven. That the sentence of death that hangs over every human being might be pardoned because someone has already paid the penalty. That's the gospel. This is the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The King is glorified, but it's through death. And, of course, his resurrection. Now, back to John. And here's the significance for us. Okay, so number one. Gentiles desire to see the king of Israel. And in the context, it fits with Zechariah's prophecy, right? All fits. Desire to see the king of Israel. Jesus uses this to speak something that now, now, finally, at the, this point in his earthly ministry, the hour is come. The hour that he should be glorified. But as we see, he was anticipating his own death and the resulting glorification. But thirdly, we are told that the king expects his servants to follow him on the same path. Verse 25. He that loves his life shall lose it and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So we see here in verse 26 that anyone serving him must follow him. And this is an imperative verb. It's a command. Let him follow. It's a command. The king issues a command. Follow me. Remember Philip? John chapter 1? Jesus finds Philip. What does he tell Philip? Follow me. Folks, that's what Jesus always tells his disciples. Follow me. Follow me. Right? He never tells us to go somewhere that he hasn't been. Right? Follow me, he says. And so if we would serve him, we must follow him. And of course, 
His path led to death. As we follow Him, we follow not necessarily in literal, physical death. Some have. Undoubtedly, if the Lord tarries His return, others will. Right? So some do literally follow Him in death. Physical death. But certainly all of us must follow him in dying to self and to sin. And that I think is the point that is being made in verse 25. He that loves his life. The next, the parallel phrase in opposite uh, says it's life in this world that he's talking about. Right? So life in the context of this cosmos, life in the context of this world that is of its father, the devil, life in the context of this world that is fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Right? That's what this world is. And the, the Lord is teaching that we have, if we love our life in this world, it will cost us everything. He that loves his life shall lose it. You're going to lose it. You're going to lose everything. And when you depart this world, right, as that rich man did, Jesus spoke of the rich man and Lazarus. When that rich man parted this world, he loved his life in this world. And when he parted this world, he lifted up his eyes in torment, pleading for even just a finger dipped in water for a drop of water to cool his tongue. You lose everything if you love your life or your father or your mother or your children or your own self also more than him. But he that hates his life in this world... Now again, the idea is not that, you know, we're... I hate life, you know. Life's awful. This is terrible. I mean, that's, that's not his point. I mean, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, right? But the point is, I'm rejoicing in him, right? I'm rejoicing in knowing him. I'm rejoicing in serving him. I'm rejoicing in being a steward of all that he has given me. What has he given me? Everything, right? Everything I've got, my physical life, my, my financial uh, assets, my material well-being, my family, my friends, it's all from him. Right? And I can rejoice in that. Right? But, but it's rejoicing in that under him. Right? He that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. You've got to follow me and I'm heading to death, is what he's saying. He that finds his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 If any man will come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. One commentator states this, the wheat analogy of verse 24 illustrates a general paradoxical principle. Death is the way to life. In Jesus' case, his death led to glory and life, not only for himself, but also for others. In the case of a disciple of Jesus, the principle is similar. A disciple must hate his life in this world. To hate his life means to be so committed to Christ that he has no self-centeredness no concern for himself. It's all for Christ. On the other hand, the man who loves his life will lose it. Anything in life can become an idol, including goals, interests, loves, etc. 
a believer should undergo a spiritual death to self. So says that commentator. So says the Bible. Turn with me to Colossians 3. And again, I, I just marvel at how Scripture has one voice. We've been studying the book of Colossians in our Sunday evening services. And we're in chapter 3. And uh, let me remind you what chapter 3 tells us. This is, this is written to those who would serve Christ. Those who are followers of His. Verse 5. Mortify, put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you also used to walk. You walked sometime when you lived in them. That was your life, folks. That was all of our lives. Right? Living for self, living to satisfy myself and my own desires, however perversely I might outwork them. Verse 8 continues, but now you also put off all these. You've got to die to this. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lying. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Follow me, he says. And if you would serve me, you've got to follow me. And oh, by the way, I'm dying. And that is what we must do too. But... As for the king, so for his servants. This path through death leads to glorification. It did for him, and it does for us also. Jesus said, John chapter 12, verse 26, If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be. Just a few chapters later, chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. We follow him, we'll be with him, and that will be glory. That place that he's preparing, that will be glory. He also said, John chapter 12, verse 26, If any man serve me, him will my father honor. The Father will honor us if we truly, humbly, with repentance and faith, follow the Messiah, follow the King of Israel, this one who died. If we identify with his death, if we put off the old man as a result of our salvation, right? Again, God saves us. We are regenerated, made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit the moment that we are saved, and then we are called to this life of sanctification. And that sanctifying process begins at salvation, ends when we see Jesus. Right? And then we'll be like him. Right? And so this is part of our following of him, and the result will be glory. Uh, let's turn again to Colossians 3. I don't know if you turned there for the last uh, little bit, but Colossians chapter 3. Okay, so verse 5 is put to death, therefore, your members, and so on. Notice verse 3. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. It will be our glorification for every human being who hears 
of their sin from the Word of God, who understands something of their rebellion against Him and His law, and knows it to be so in their own lives and acknowledges their guilt before Him, but who also hears this good news that God the Son, this One who is just, has salvation. And He provided for our salvation through His own death. He triumphed over death in the resurrection and He now is a preparing a place for those who believe in Him. And if we come by faith to identify with His death and His life, then one day when He comes again, we will participate in His glory. We will appear with Him in glory. Verse 1 of Colossians 3, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Follow me, he says. Yes, it's going to end in glory. The way to get there, though, you die to self and you die to sin. Last reference, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The king expects his servants to follow him on the same path. If you serve me, follow me, he says. Romans chapter 8. Verse 16. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit if we have believed on the Lord Jesus That Spirit of God dwells within us. He's the down payment. He's the first installment of the salvation that God has provided for us. That Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him may involve literal physical suffering and death, always involves denying myself, taking up a cross and following him. Always. right? If we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, literally, right? whether it's literal suffering in a jail somewhere or dying somewhere for the cause of Christ or whether it's just turning away from the siren song, the allurements and enticements to sin of the world, whatever the suffering, it is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature, creation, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself, creation itself also, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Jesus says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. Uh, And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Folks, there is a glorious liberty ahead. Right? It is awaiting all the children of God who have come to see their sin and to see their Savior by faith. And so here we have the Lord Jesus responding to Gentiles, desiring to see him and talk with him. And he says, yes, the hour has come. The Son of Man will be glorified. I'll walk through that valley. This is the, I, for this cause came I to this hour. And he did it. He did it for us. And so here, as we observe the Lord's table, we have that which he gave us by which to remember him. And the scripture teaches that as often as we do these things, we proclaim his death until he comes. And folks, that is the great encouragement. We look back to his death. 
We're thankful that he was willing to do that. We depend upon him every day that we live. And by his grace, every day that we live, we live for his glory. And we await with much anticipation his return. He's coming again. This isn't the end of the story, right? He's coming again. And that will be glory for all who have followed him.